WNYC, and with us now, in conjunction with WNYC's Being 12 series, is the New York City Schools Chancellor, Carmen Farina. Chancellor Farina, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. And since you are here in conjunction with Being 12, we'll start there, and then we'll get to some of the things in the news on how you and Mayor de Blasio are reforming education. And listeners, we can take a few calls for Chancellor Farina, 212-433-WNYC. Um, So being 12 corresponds roughly to being in seventh grade, as you know. In what ways do you see that as a pivotal year for setting kids up for high school and even adulthood? Well, first of all, I think seventh grade is the most difficult grade in the entire system to teach. Oh, absolutely. To teach. To teach and to be part of that whole um, element when they're not sure of themselves, they don't sleep well at night, Um, they look in the mirror 14 times a day, never like what they see. So as a teacher in front of... 12-year-old, you've got to prove yourself over and over again. And this is also a grade where relationships really matter a lot. In my first six months as chancellor, I actually only visited middle schools because I really wanted to be very clear that this, to me, is a pivotal grade. They decide by seventh grade if they're going to finish high school. And And if you finish high school, then you go to college. You can't get to college without high school. So for me, making sure that seventh grade is an experience that's interactive teaching, that you have the right number of guidance counselors, that uh, they also understand that they have strong arts programs. It's one of the reasons that we put our after-school programs in middle schools so that they have a place to hang out, which is a very important part of what being an adolescent is all about. We did a lot of workshops for parents on dealing with the adolescent stress because it is a very difficult age to forget the hormones, everything about them. They're worrying about being adults, and yet they want to be adults. So to me, seventh grade is pivotal for many, many reasons, and anyone who's lived with a seventh grader knows that if you're ever going to invest in boarding school, that might have been the right age to do it because they are really not sure of themselves, and they really need to be nurtured and loved, and yet they push away from being nurtured and loved. Uh, Did you say that seventh grade is when they decide if they're going to finish high school? By seventh grade, they either decide whether they're committed to being in school, and I think That's why it's really important that seventh-grade teachers be a certain type of teacher. I think they need to be the kind who make learning fun but also be rigorous in their instruction. It's also one of the reasons I've been encouraging middle schools to have what we call student-led conferences so that instead of parent-teacher conferences, the students actually sit in on the conference and along with the teachers say, this is what I'm good at, this is what I need more help in. They need to be invested in their own learning. And they need to be able to say, this is what I need to do for myself. We're moving them towards independence, but we need them to be committed for further learning. Our education reporter, Beth Fertig, showed me a study from Johns Hopkins professor Robert Balfans that found kids in sixth grade, roughly the same, already show critical indicators of whether they make it through high school. And he concludes, we know that half of the 500,000 kids who drop out of school every year come from just 12% of the nation's high schools or 1,700, quote, dropout factory. Uh, Those most at risk of dropping out can be identified as early as middle school through key indicators of poor attendance, unsatisfactory behavior, and course failure in math and English. So it sounds like that's consistent with your experience. Yeah, absolutely. And attendance is one of the issues that we're really focusing on um, across the board in New York City this year. 
because if you're not in school, you don't learn. But the other piece is that if you're absent from school consistently, you get in the habit of not going to school. So it really needs to be nipped in the bud in middle school so that these students actually go into high school ready to be learners. When I was in seventh grade in the city school system in Queens, they called it junior high school, and it included seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Now it's called middle school, and it starts and ends a year earlier, 6th, 7th, and 8th grades. Was that changed because of evolving knowledge about that age group? That was part of it. Uh, It was partially also done as we increased more kindergarten classes in the elementary school. It was also when we felt that students would learn better in a departmentalized setting because you really need to have certified math teachers and science teachers and even more increased arts programs, and you couldn't do that within an elementary school setting. So having a very strong middle school really shows you that the kids can make lots of choices. To me, an important part of middle school is electives, enrichment programs, and like I said, after-school programs. So that's something that you can do within an elementary school setting. It seems like there have been so many iterations of middle school reform. Most recently, there was a program funded by the city council, and now there's the Middle School Quality Initiative. I mean, you've only been chancellor you know, for this one year, but test scores still drop off in middle school. What have we learned from previous efforts? What went wrong with middle with middle school reform, previous efforts? Why are we still having what seems to be a fundamental conversation in 2015? Well, I think one of the things is that sometimes test scores are looked at as strictly academic, and there's a lot of other reasons why you have to look at the adolescent in a holistic way. You have to look at their social-emotional growth. It's one of the reasons we're doing community schools and putting in more wellness mental health facilities in those schools. I mean, the stress that these kids are under, a lot of it is biological, but some of it is also their environment and lots of other things. So we, we need to target the things we know that matter. And also, we need to take adolescents at the level they come in. I was actually just talking to Beth about MSQI, and one of the things that those programs do... That's the Middle School Quality Initiative. I'm sorry. Yeah, we do a lot of jargon in our work. Um, but it is, what what level does a student come in with, and how do you move it forward? You can't say all of you in sixth grade have to be on sixth grade level, because that's not the reality. So how do you start a pre-summer program? How do you have kids um, come into Saturday academies? We've been doing a lot of work this past year on having students come in on Saturdays who need the extra support, both in elementary and middle school. So I think it's looking at the child holistically and also getting parents more engaged on how do you deal with your adolescent at home. You know, what are the things that, you know, really make sense? You know, their sleep habits a little bit skew. How do you make sure you do that in a more systemic way? How do you do reward programs for attendance? One of the things I learned as a superintendent, that it sometimes makes sense to put all your arts programs first period in the morning in middle schools. Really? Well, they'll come for phys ed. They'll come for art. They'll come for band. And then once they're there, they're there. So how do you build off of that in a way that makes sense? And also, how do you give middle school students more choices? We, we now have student councils in many of our schools. I'm encouraging that in all our middle schools. Where do they make some of the decisions? With our new discipline code, students are sitting in on how it's adapted in their respective schools. We've seen suspensions go down once they have a voice. To me, adolescents need to have a voice in what's happening in their building if you want to see them fully engaged. So let's see. Maybe we should dessert, we should serve dessert first at dinner and then the Brussels sprouts and hope they go on to it. Yeah, or mix the Brussels sprouts in with the dessert. Ew. <laughs> our guest is New York City Schools Chancellor Carmen Farina. In our Being 12 series, um, Morning Edition aired a first-person narrative this morning from 12-year-old 
Vicki Donnelly of Brooklyn. Part of it was about gender roles. Let's listen to a minute. Um, <laughs> yesterday, I said I was going to sleep at 1 o'clock, and I ended up going to sleep at 2.30. Mm-hmm. The thing is, when I, whenever I say I'm going to sleep, I just open my phone, and I spend the whole night on it. I landed up this video for some reason um, about meat, and I became a vegetarian for a while, and then I just turned vegan, and it was great, so yeah. Uh, I like his voice, and he's so cute. I watch a lot of science stuff, so this one time, I was looking at gender roles, and then I found this song by Benny. When people try to step out of gender roles, people judge them. When women walk around shirtless, people judge them, but when men does it, they're like, okay, it's okay. So, yeah. I watch animes, Japanese cartoons, right? So they're always, like, looking really good and cute. Oh, I love their fashion so much, and their culture is so amazing. I haven't met anybody like me, except for Zena. She's my best friend. Twelve-year-old Vicky Dorselli of Brooklyn, one of the many twelve-year-olds who you'll be hearing through the week on WNYC in our Being Twelve project. And in conjunction with that, and we'll also get into some of the other education policy stories in the news. Shortly, we have the New York City Schools Chancellor, Carmen Farina. Um, She said, when you step out of gender roles, you get judged for it. It's a well-known age for girls stepping back more in school, especially in math and science. Does curriculum or pedagogy take this into account? I think so. One of the things I've encouraged middle school principals to think about, in seventh grade in particular, to have gender-specific classes. Um, and some of the schools are experimenting with ELA, you know, English and language classes. Separating the boys and girls? S- separating the boys and girls because they like to read different kinds of things. They like to have discussions on different kinds of things. And the idea is to get them involved. It's not to judge them for what they have to say. And I went to an all-girls high school, and I think some of the discussions we had back then we could do more freely. So I'm not saying it happens everywhere, but I think you as a school leader need to make a decision what's working in your school. I Sometimes Sometimes feminists push back against that idea because they say separation always works to the disadvantage of girls eventually. I think when you see that the emphasis we're putting in our schools on coding for girls and all kinds of technology, that student that just spoke obviously is already using her phone probably more than she should. But how do we use a technology that adolescents use so naturally in our classrooms? And I think also we should, we need to have clubs that may be gender-specific. Went to visit a middle school recently where a lot of their guidance programs are gender-specific, so they can talk about the issues that are special to them. I don't believe that you should separate them for the whole day, but I do think there are times during the day where it makes sense. And I actually think it works um, in literacy classes because of the type of things they like to read. Boys like to read a lot more nonfiction. The articles they read, they should be free to speak about. And the same thing with girls. Huh. Of course, boys at that age are going through crises of their own. Absolutely. Maybe worse. We know teenage boys are lagging behind girls academically. Girls are getting into competitive colleges as a, at a much higher rate than boys. There's affirmative action for boys now to maintain gender balance on campus. How about attention to boys' needs at that age? What's boy-specific? 
Well, I, I think certainly the sports, um, a lot more physical activities, not the girls shouldn't have it also. But I think for boys, you know, having the ability to move their bodies in different ways and so they can be really, you know, attentive in class is important. I have three grandsons, so I really have become very focused on what do boys like to do better. I think also allowing students to speak more in class overall. I believe interactive learning is crucial. We need to stop having classrooms where adolescents simply listen to teachers and take notes. Those kind of days are gone forever. And if you assign students to work in teams where it's a boy and a girl team and equal number of people on a team, then the dialogue starts there and it can move further as it goes on. I think with boys also, one of the things uh, that we find, and, and I, don't, I don't see it science-specific or math-specific, I see it in terms of who's willing to raise their hand, mm-hmm. who gets called on. Uh-huh. Um, as I was a staff developer for middle schools, and one of the things I used to teach teachers is to be sure that they, in their own heads, keep track of. And you don't always call on the kid who has his hand up. And you try to do boy, girl, boy, girl across the room. And kids need to know that you're going to call on them whether they raise their hands or not. Who so. puts their hand up and speaks. It doesn't change, you know, when you get to the adult world and you're in business meetings. Yeah, well, that's why I don't believe in raising your hand. I believe in having kids turn and talk to each other and then the teacher actually saying, what did you hear someone else say? rather than have them repeat what they said themselves. Are you surprised that the first call we're going to take from a parent relating to 12-year-olds has to do with standardized tests? Not at all. Megan in Park Slope, you're on WNYC. Hello, Megan. Hi there. Hi, uh, Dr. Freenia. So glad to have a chance to, to ask you this question. Uh, there are comments in on the board on WNYC from Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan, all wondering, wanting you to talk about the tests. Um, Our administrators and teachers have made such a compelling case for how deeply flawed these tests are. And now Governor Cuomo is proposing that they be used for 50% of our teachers' evaluations. And so what's your question? How can we make our voices heard? Okay. Well, Well, I'm going to assume the question. Um, First of all, I believe that teacher evaluation should be no more than 30% of the test. But I want to be very clear. I do believe in the test. I think kids will be tested throughout all their lives. And I think meeting challenges is part of what they need to do. But I think that in terms of what makes a good teacher, it's a lot more than just a test. A good teacher is someone who engages family in the classroom. A good teacher is someone who collaborates with others. Um, A good teacher has to be observed by a principal. No CEO in this country would allow an outside company to come in and evaluate their workers. So a principal who's a good principal is walking their building, looking in classrooms, saying to a teacher, you're you're doing this well, but maybe you should be thinking about doing that well. As a principal, I know I was in classrooms all the time, and I expect everyone who works for me to take that as a really important role. Um, But I don't – I think – you know, you can argue about any test. People argue about the SATs, but taking a test, particularly one – that I think our kids are more prepared for now than they might have been in the past. I think year one was problematic because it was a new curriculum and people weren't used to it. But again, Common Core is not um, a curriculum. What is what is the curriculum is do kids learn to speak before an audience? Are kids being taught in more nonfiction work? So the teacher evaluation should be no more than 30% of test scores and the rest should be a combination of other things that teachers should be responsible for. And so on... Common Core, as it pertains to middle school, it's supposed to encourage critical thinking, not just memorization. And Common Core standardized tests are supposed to reflect that too, the tests. So teaching to the test actually becomes educating kids to think 
unlike with traditional standardized tests. But how much do you think that's real, and how much do you think that's hype? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, but I think we're getting there. So, for example, one of the things I've seen is a big difference, and, and again, like last year, in six months, I visited almost 50 middle schools. And the one thing I see different is that there's a more of a an exposure to kids to uh, to text that requires analyzing, analytical thinking, and also that the kids talk to each other. I was in a school recently where in groups of four, they were all looking at text, and the kids were giving their opinions on how they would write it, and the kids were not agreeing with each other, which is what it should be, and I think that's part of what we want to see happen in classrooms. I think any test um, is somewhat flawed, but there needs to be something that says universally this is what we're all being held accountable for, and I do think teachers have gotten much better. We've done a lot more um, giving them teacher training and how to do this better. I think the problem with Common Core in the beginning was that it was a good premise, and I think I still believe it's a good premise, but the implementation of it was probably not done as well as it could have been. One of the Bloomberg initiatives that you seem to be undoing is hiring younger principals and giving them a fair amount of autonomy. You've increased the experience requirements, and you've put district superintendents back in further charge of the principals. I think you have a new announcement about that this morning. What did you change and why, and um, what are you announcing today? Well, first and foremost, I think you need to align supervision and support. And um, I was under the Bloomberg administration, and I think the fact that they were separate sometimes was very confusing. So a principal could literally have one person telling her X and another person telling her Y. In addition to which, if someone who was supervising you only came into your building once a year, which was the plan, the person who did the quality review was there that one time but didn't know what you were doing as a body of work. And the person who supported you may not have been supporting you in the things that you were being evaluated. So having strong superintendents does not negate principal autonomy. I want to be clear. No one had more autonomy than I did as a principal, and I honor it and I respect it. But I also feel that if I have a problem as a principal, I need to know who to pick up the phone and call, and that person should also be held accountable. I believe in accountability. So to me, the accountability you'll see is the superintendent's report to me. Principals report to superintendents, teachers report to principals. And there is no, nothing in that alignment that doesn't say we can't all do this work together. Today we're announcing our borough field um, directors, and these borough field directors will be the support for the superintendents. Because right now what we have around the city is a, is a system of inequity. So part of the city that may have more English language learners has the same number of support at, for English language learners as another part that has, doesn't have as many. So we're trying to align all the resources that superintendents need, professional development, you know, teacher training, um, support for uh, English language learners, support for special ed, in a way that a principal can call a borough director and say, look, I need you to set up X, Y, and Z. These are the needs of my particular district, and there's one place to go. It's not like right now we have superintendents who are dealing with 17 different support systems, and, and that makes no sense to me. We need to make it more cohesive it also means the best people in the system will still have jobs. They'll just have it under a different structure. So it's about how we move the pieces, but never will I want to remove principal autonomy. But it comes with accountability. You earn it. You don't automatically have it. You also, for the first time since taking office, closed two schools last week for being failing schools. I want to get into this with a caller also. Lindsay in Bed-Stuy are on WNYC with New York City Schools Chancellor Carmen Farina. Hello. 
Hi, Brian. Hi, Chancellor Farina. Um, I just have a question. You know, these two controversial closings that have just happened, both of whom have a holistic approach and a lot of family involvement. I'm just curious how you think, you know, a young third grader, a young fourth grader, how their the trajectory of their academic learning will be affected when they go into this tumultuous time of adolescence, knowing that their school, which had a holistic approach and a lot of family involvement, has been closed under your tutelage? Well, we've made very clear that we will support schools. I mean, our struggling schools, renewal schools are being supported before any other decisions are made. However, with charter schools, I have no control. If I go into a charter school, which I... And we should say these were both charter schools that you closed. That is correct. And the reality is when I go into charter schools, I can give recommendations. They don't have to pay attention to me. But when I go into public schools and I make strong recommendations, like the principal will be moved. We're going to putting in an ambassador principal, which we've done once and we'll be doing a lot more in the next couple of weeks. I have some influence. I can say to a, a public school, all your teachers must attend mandated teacher training. I can't do that in a charter school. So the fact that the only choice when a charter school is not functioning is to close it is part of their contract. It's part of state law. And it's not a place where I have any influence whatsoever. So I go to charter schools on a regular basis by invitation. And to the degree that I can assist them, I absolutely do. But my influence stops at, at the suggestion level. It cannot be done any further than that. So because a charter school is independent, you can't reform it as chancellor. You have to reform other failing schools. That is correct. So the only option for you, you're saying, when a charter school fails and fails again and fails again, is to actually withdraw its charter. That is correct, and that's state law. So you're not also trying to send a message to the charter school movement, which has been so in this administration's face? No. As a matter of fact, I work very cooperatively with lots of them. I was just in one of the charter schools that I think is doing a phenomenal job and actually helped them in terms of, of a collocation for their high school because I believe they deserve to do the work they, they're doing, and they're doing quite well. But I do think like every other system, there's good and people who are not doing as well. So I, I th- And I again, they welcome. I sit on the charter school board. And and I work cooperatively with them. We're working with them on several initiatives with English language learners and arts programs. So I, I'm totally committed to working with them. There's been a lot of reporting that the most controversial charter school uh, group, the Success Academies, perform better – their kids perform better on standardized tests than regular public schools with similar populations and better than other charter schools. So I wonder if there's something in particular to learn – substantively from the Success Academy's success that you acknowledge or that you can apply system-wide? I, I think we learn from everybody and the same way that they are successful. In some ways, we're successful in other ways. So it's um, all the kids in New York City belong to me, and I, I see it that way. Um, also on, on closing schools, I'm curious your take on what was one of the big Bloomberg initiatives, which was, uh, and we talked about before, some schools being dropout factories, they tried to address that largely through breaking up big failing high schools into multiple smaller schools, and they tout lowering the dropout rate as maybe the biggest success in Bloomberg's 12 years. How much would you put it that way? I know you were deputy chancellor some of that time. And how much do you support continuing the small high schools model? I think that a lot of the small high schools are doing fabulous work. I do think that there is a limit but what becomes too small. If you want to see, you know, AP courses, if, and, and that's one of the things we're talking about. In campuses, when you have four or five high schools, and there are several of them, 
I'm encouraging them to share certain things like art teachers, AP courses, um, libraries. There, there is too much separateness in some of these schools where if they came together on some issues, they would be able to have a phys ed program, for example, that's competitive on varsity. So I don't think – I think there are some bigger schools that are doing well, but I am not against the small school movement. I think it's a matter of how small is too small, and I certainly feel that one of the things that was done very well in the last – administration is moving the graduation rate, and I think we're going to move it even more. So I think, you know, we, you learn, you always learn um, from what's come before you, but you hope to improve on as you go forward. And pre-K, universal pre-K, obviously a big initiative of this administration. And there was a study released last week um, that said more than maybe we thought, a lot of those new slots are actually going to kids who are already in preschool programs elsewhere who are more middle class more affluent, and so maybe it's not really creating as many new spots for low-income kids um, as we thought it would. What's well, your response? Let me disagree vehemently. Um, two-thirds of the new spots are in our lower-income parts of the city. I visit pre-K all the time. People invite me constantly, and I've made it my mission because I want to make sure that we're not just opening seats, but that we're also increasing opportunities and that it's high quality. So I'm telling everyone a thousand extra words, vocabulary in all our pre-Ks. Don't lose the joy, but make sure that in the housekeeping corner, in the block corner, there's a piece of writing that comes out of it. Uh, everywhere I go now to pre-K, everybody's writing their names because it's, you know, if the chance is coming, the kids better be learning their letters. What could be terrible about four-year-olds that are coming from all kinds of neighborhoods being able to do the same thing as my kids did when they went to school and they were four-year-olds? So to me, pre-K is a golden opportunity to ensure that all second graders can read on grade level, which is one of my ways to be judged myself. And I do think we're there, and I think we need to be there as much as possible. 60 seconds left. Back to seventh grade in our Being 12 series. Heidi from Sunset Park writes, she agrees that seventh grade is difficult. I have a daughter in eighth grade, and she struggled in seventh. It was especially difficult that attendance and grades in seventh grade are so important for high school admissions. She asks, is there any way to change the high school admission process so that there is less pressure on seventh graders for grades? And we have 30 seconds. Life is all about being evaluated. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I think that's the grade where we have to say to kids, you have to be held accountable. Everyone's being held accountable. Why not a seventh grader? What we have to do is with support. They need the guidance counselors. They need the parents who pay attention to them. Um, they need to know how to work with their peers, which are the peers that encourage you to move in certain directions. But the reality is you can't say, I want my child in a good high school, and then say, I want my child not to have so much pressure in seventh grade. The Chancellor of the New York City Public Schools, Carmen Farina, thank you very, very much. If you succeed, the city succeeds. Absolutely. Good luck. Thank you. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. And if you want to hear all the pieces in our Being 12 project and read more of the reporting, go to WNYC.org or schoolbook.org and listen to the station all this week.